Well, we're in a series in the book of Ecclesiastes. Last week was the opening round that introduced the book, and uh, Henley did that. And so they're on this retreat this weekend. He asked me several months ago if I would take this slot, and we didn't know until uh, a few weeks ago which, which verses it would be. And so I get to transition us into the first quest. This is a wisdom quest. I, I love this book of Ecclesiastes, and I feel blessed to participate in preaching in this series. This is a series about godly wisdom. When you look at the book of Proverbs, it's an introduction to wisdom, and it focuses on God's blessing when you make the right choices. Well, Ecclesiastes is advanced learning. This is the advanced program. It's advanced wisdom. It's dealing with the difficulties of life. It's a reality check for living for God in in the midst of a fallen world. And when you read the book, you'll see that King Solomon, our teacher, is a cynic. And so I like to call this the cynic's gospel. He's looking at life through real lenses. And Solomon's a little snarky. And and since I'm a cynical snark, I, I, I like that as well. I've I've taken a, a, a Lenten pledge of not snarking for 40 days, and, and Mike Bakarich asked me if I would have anything to say. Um, so, I, and that was the first test because I couldn't snark back when he said that, you see. So, last week we saw that Solomon says life is a repetitive drudgery. There's nothing new under the sun. Generations are all the same. Time is coming and going and going and coming while the world moves on and all of us are soon forgotten. Life, Solomon says, is a vapor. It just passes away. And most people then live in denial of that life is a vapor and, and, uh, and the result of that no- denial is the idol of control. Whether we're trying to control the environment or our circumstances or our relationships or on a global scale, even the nations at war with one another. It, Solomon says it's all futile. It's a vapor. It's a chasing after the wind. So the question is, if life is futile... Is there anything worth living for? Is there joy anywhere? Can can we find true satisfaction? So Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon to answer that question. But the answer is not easy, nor is it simple. This book is a step-by-step quest for wisdom, godly wisdom, the, the kind that takes time and prayer and study and thinking, and ultimately grace. My friend John Ragland said to me in the hall, don't you wish you'd had some wisdom at 20 that you have now? And uh, you know the old saying, youth is wasted on the young, and wisdom is wasted on the old. Somehow the two don't seem to mix. So we're going to step through this book, step by step, and and uh, we're going to we're going to see that wisdom takes time, but ultimately it takes grace. And and much of this quest runs through the mud of depression. So let's see if we can profit from Solomon's quest. I have four things that I want to share with you this morning, four aspects of the gospel I want to share. And the first is the path 
of wisdom, the path of wisdom. So we're going to, we're not going to read ahead. We're going to read as we go to work better that way. So put Ecclesiastes one up there and we'll start in verse 12 because Henley already did the first 11 verses. So Ecclesiastes one, verse 12 to 18, hear the word of God. I, the preacher have been King over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be business busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were ever before me in Jerusalem, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceived that this also is striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So Solomon tells us right up front that his goal is to understand everything that he encounters. He, he's devoted to the task of understanding God and everything that God does from heaven above to the earth below. And, and what Solomon figures out is that God has laid a heavy burden on humanity. Not that we don't deserve it. Well, we do. We're, we're after all, sinful creatures whose, whose greatest desire is to make ourselves into God himself. That's what the temptation was to Adam and Eve in the garden. And even centuries later, at the time of Noah, it's still there. Here's God's assessment in Genesis 6 and verse 5. Jehovah saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What a ringing indictment. Only evil all the time. Uh, we are finite and dependent creatures who cannot keep ourselves alive simply by wishing it were so. My wife, Sherry, is a home hospice nurse, and she can testify that you're going to go, and you can't keep yourself here. And on top of that, we are sinful creatures with self-centered attitudes, striving for self-promotion and for control. And so what is, what, what's the result of all of our self-indulgent quests for purpose and meaning? Well, Solomon observes that they're futile, that all things done by men under the sun, that they are a vapor. And to prove his point, he quotes that proverb in verse 15. Put that back up. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. We, we, the truth is we can't fix what is broken, Na namely ourselves. And we can't avoid being finite creatures with an end in place. We, we lack the ability to be independent or self-existent like God. God is self-existent. We are completely dependent upon him. But, but this proverb also says something else that may bring us some troubling thoughts. And that is that God is sovereign. He is in control of all things. It's not us who made the world crooked. It's God who made the world crooked because of our sin. And we lack the power to straighten things out, 
no matter how hard we try. Only God can save us from trouble. And only God gives the increase in the field in due season. And we lack the power to make things grow. We toss out the, rain, the, the, the seed and we pray for rain. And Jesus says that like the wind, the Holy Spirit blows wherever he wills. You see, the sovereignty of God is a stumbling block in every generation. Now, y'all are good Presbyterians, so maybe you're not stumbling. I uh, doubt if that's the case. And, and in order to make the Almighty more desirable, the, the church is prone to strip God of his power and make him more like us and make him dependent upon us and our wishes. You know, the empty popular notion is that God is a warm friend who, who lacks the power to fix things, like that old movie, Oh God. You're, some of you are old enough to remember that movie, and maybe you've seen it on one of those traditional channels, the, the movie where George Burns appears, and, and he's God, and he's helping John Denver out of some trouble, except he can't really help. The everlasting one watches us make a mess of things, and he moans and groans and wonders why we just don't get it. That's George Burns playing the part badly of God. In the church, some will say that God waits for us. It's really sad. He waits for you to come to the altar hoping that you can fix yourself by making some commitment and that you'll come when you're called. It's sad. He waits and he, and, and he hopes that you'll just get it and he wonders why you won't come. And in the movie, The Shack, have you seen that movie? Have you read that book? In the, the book and the movie, God endures patiently the evils of men, hoping we'll figure out the good and that we'll give up control. I, I remember, it was a little over 15 years ago now, when the tsunami, there was a big earthquake and a, a, and a destructive tsunami hit the Indonesian islands. In Southeast Asia, it was back in 2004, and I, I was watching the, the show Hannity and Combs. That dates me right there when there was not just Hannity. So it was Hannity and Combs. It was a balanced show. You had the ultra-conservative Hannity, the ultra-conservative liberal Combs, and, and they would argue back and forth and interview people. And so Franklin Graham, who I like, was on that show that night talking about the tsunami. And after Hannity fed him some lines, Col Combs asked him, well, where was God when this happened? And that's a good question, isn't it? Where was God? when this happened. And so Franklin Graham hemmed and hauled for a minute, and he said, well, God was where he always is, on his throne, allowing things to happen that he doesn't like. And I thought, no, no. And like bad referees in a ball game, I started yelling at the TV, no, no, that is not it. A thousand times no. This is what it is, Amos 3. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless Jehovah has done it? And how about this one in Isaiah 45, <clears throat> the ultimate verse of God's sovereignty. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am Jehovah who does all these things. Adam and Eve sought dominion and control 
By false wisdom, by madness and folly, they listen to the serpent. And, and quite frankly, beloved, we're prone to the same disease, even in the church. Listen, nothing will kill your joy faster than to imagine that God is not God. And trying to control God is like grabbing the wind. It's a vapor. The path of wisdom reveals very clearly that God is sovereign and he is the fountain of joy. And any any attempt on my part to replace him is idolatry. But such wisdom also comes with a warning. It's in verse 18. Look at that. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Beloved, wisdom, godly wisdom is not easy because it reveals the true state of the world. The wise at heart do not say, ah, things aren't so bad. You're going to be okay. No, the wise know that things are truly horrible and that sadness abounds. It's the fool who judges God as a taskmaster of despair, unworthy of devotion or obedience. The wise knows that things are so bad, there is only one path out of the trouble, only one path to find lasting and true joy. I I love the the, 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 the way the late Jack Miller used to say it. When people would come into his office, they'd have problems And they'd come to his office for counsel, and he would listen to their problems. Uh, And uh, when they were done, he would smile gently, and he would say, cheer up. It's worse than you think. You see, the rest of this book is Solomon's description of his quest for joy, and we're going to follow along with it. So the first quest is for joy in pleasure and purpose. Pleasure and purpose. Let's read chapter two. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. And I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? And I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. That means he didn't get drunk all the time. And, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. And I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. And I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. And I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great 
and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep it from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I expended in doing, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." So Solomon tells us here that he tried the party route. Maybe a little mirth and some laughter and some fun will bring joy. So we'll get our friends together on the weekends, every weekend, right? Not just a weekend, but every weekend. And we'll find joy and pleasure and meaning there. And we'll drink some wine and beer and and maybe a little hard liquor. And we'll watch a game and eat some wings and pizza and maybe smoke a cigar. And, and during the week, we'll spend our evenings watching Netflix or Stars or HBO Max or just scroll our phone screens. You know, we, all ha- we used to have stiff thumbs. Now we have all loose joints in our thumbs. And, and, and uh, we can post on social media. And, and because we're so prosperous that our teenagers are not required to spend their weekends or evenings working like in other places in order to help the family pay its bills, our kids are online playing a little Minecraft or, or some Call of Duty. But, but do these distractions pass the test? Do they bring meaning and joy? Well, Solomon says, no, but it's worth a try. At least we managed to ignore the misery of war and COVID and death for a few hours. And what about alcohol? Does it bring meaning? Well, Schlitz Beer used to tell us that we only go around once and we need to grab for all the gusto we can get. And of course, that means buying not a 12-pack, but a case of cans. When I was in in high school, you could get a case of old Milwaukee for $3.99. But Solomon wasn't getting smashed every weekend. That that would be a false idea. He was keeping his senses. Solomon was keeping his wits about him while he drank. He was purposely testing wisdom to see if the pursuit of a life of pleasure brings meaning. You know, the church has often been a big no on alcohol, but I can think of at least four legitimate uses for alcohol that are given in the scriptures. Number one is sacramental. It's right there before you except for I think we're drinking grape juice. Wine was included in the offerings of the temple in the Old Testament, and wine is part of the Lord's Supper. We use grape juice in the Bible Belt because of the silliness of prohibition. And so a man named Welch in 1869 created grape juice without fermentation so that the church could have its sacrament and stay holy too, because we're better than God. And, you know, we haven't switched back to wine in the PCA because it's not worth the hassle of explaining every time in the Bible Belt while we're drinking wine. And the second use for wine is medicinal. This is the only one that drugs have, by the way. Drugs are only useful for medicine, not these other things. Paul tells Timothy to drink wine for his stomach. The good Samaritan used wine on the wounds of the fallen man on the Jericho Road. The third use for wine is for thirst. Jesus drank it on the cross. Wine is the drink of choice when the wells are filthy dirty. 
and corrupted. The fourth use of wine is for celebration. That's what Solomon is talking about here in our passage. Jesus changed water into a lot of wine at the wedding in Cana, enough for 600 people to have their own bottle. That's a good bit. But if that doesn't convince you that drinking is legitimate for celebration, then how about God's command that his people bring their tithe once a year to the temple in the Old Testament and then have a God party? Put that passage up there, Deuteronomy 14. He says, turn your tithe into money and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Jehovah your God and rejoice, you and your household. You see, God gives meat, fruits, and vegetable for food and for drink. So some peach brandy in the study after dinner puts a little delight on a, on a peaceful meal. And Irish cream always goes with eggnog. But the problem, of course, is drunkenness. Wine comes with a warning. Here's Ephesians 5. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The reason young people get drunk is that they lack wisdom. And that's true for older people as well that get drunk. It takes wisdom and, ma and maturity to enjoy the party and not seek answers in the fruit of overindulgence. And that's true for eating and drinking. That's because parties, listen now, parties don't actually bring joy. The party is designed to be the fruit and the outcome of a joyful life. It's how you share joy with one another. Not seeking joy, but sharing joy. Do you get that? People get drunk from misery, not from joy. And yet American Christians are constantly condemning the world for drunkenness. And, and I think we just don't get it. What else is there to do but drink? I mean, really, we have two options, follow Jesus or follow despair. That's it. That's all there is. It's amazing to me that most people aren't drunk or stoned all the time. The Apostle Paul said, if the resurrection of Christ is not true, then let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Vanity. Vanity. It's all vanity. So since parties don't bring meaning, Solomon turns to purpose. He intends to leave his stamp on the world for good. To show the greatness of his glory and his might. Gardens, expansive parks, orchards, lakes with free running water. The, the Arbor Society should have a Solomon Award. He, he expanded his wealth. He, he filled his lands with slaves and herds and horses and filling his palace with gold and silver as a monument to his own greatness. Well, you know, the problem is we've seen over the last two years that the next generation can take those monuments down. And then Solomon tried the arts and music to find meaning. 
Sherry and I and the kids lived in Florida for 17 years, and our church was right on US-1. That's a national highway that runs all the way from Maine to, to the Key West. And, and, uh, and because of the weather, Florida collects schizophrenics. The, the, these nomadic wanderers wander up and down the highway, and the weather's good in Florida, and they're easy to spot because they're walking along the highway, often talking to themselves, and they wear headphones. And what's the reason for the dialogue and the sound in their ears? It's meant to block out the voices that they constantly hear. But you see, rational men and women like us are doing some serious blocking too. Have you noticed? And what Americans are blocking out is silence. We're avoiding our own thoughts. Heaven help us if we have to stop and just think and listen to God for a few minutes. Because that only leads to despair. So it's the TV that's droning on in the background of every household or AirPods stuck in the ears. You never know if somebody's on or off. I've noticed now that I can't tell whether somebody in the grocery store is talking to me or talking to somebody else. Am I, am I the only one? Or constant smartphone checking and watching. Even in the car though, tis, 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 that's illegal. Anything to occupy the time. I remember um, when I was still traveling to India a couple years ago, I caught the late night shuttle to go. I'd just gotten back. I caught the shuttle to go back to my car. And, uh, and on the way, there were a dozen of us in the shuttle. I just watched with amazement. I was the only person whose phone was still in their pocket. We couldn't even do 10 minutes. People were stuck with stuff in their ears. And... You see, Solomon built great public works Monday through Friday. He went to the Bethlehem Opera House every Thursday. And then on, su on Sunday afternoons, it was the Jerusalem Symphony. And he filled his harem with a thousand women, the delight of every man. He was the greatest show on earth and said yes to everything he saw. And what was the result? Verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So his next quest turned from, from purpose and pleasure. He turned to study and education. I know we have a bunch of teachers here. And so he studied wisdom and folly. Let's read some more. Verse 12. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Now let's then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. So let's be clear. 
Ecclesiastes is about the pursuit of godly wisdom to understand the meaning of life and the pathway to joy. And what Solomon is talking about in these five verses is the pursuit of wisdom as the source of meaning. Do you see the difference? The pursuit of knowledge is not the same as the pursuit of joy. Our culture often has that confused. His first conclusion is that wisdom is better than folly. Can I get an amen? Amen. You're not with me yet, are you? He he doesn't offer proof, but his book book of Proverbs sure does, and, and life does as well. Here's an obvious example from Proverbs 6. Go to the ant, O slugger. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. When you look at the lazy in the book of Proverbs, the lazy fool turns on his bed like a door turns on its hinges. I love that view. The, the, the fool impulsively spends every dime he gets as soon as he gets it. He has a hole in his pocket. And he never looks ahead, and he always waits until the last minute. Obviously, it's better to have food and water than to be hungry. Am I right? It is obvious. So it's obvious that wisdom is better than foolishness. The question is, does it matter? Dave Ramsey would tell you that if the collecting of things and toys is your goal, well, you'll collect more toys and more things if you show some self-discipline, some wisdom, and pay cash for everything. Impulsive credit card debt leaves you with less, not more. But does it matter? So Solomon's second conclusion is in verse 14, where he says, the wise and the fool both die. And if you stretch this thinking out, you realize that some wise people die while they're young, while some fools die when they're old. Death is the great equalizer. Here's what what, uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Reminds me of a great joke that I usually use in a money sermon, but it's perfect here. There was an old man who was dying. He had cancer and he knew he was going to die. And he was very, very rich, a billionaire. And so he began to pray and ask God, can I, can I take any of this stuff with me? And, and the Lord said, no. And so he pleaded with the Lord, and finally the Lord said, you can take a suitcase of whatever you want. And so he filled the suitcase with solid bars of gold. And he died, and he had the suitcase with him. He appeared at the pearly gates, and there was Peter. And Peter said, you know, you can't bring anything with you. He said, I got a special dispensation from the Lord to bring one suitcase of whatever I want. And so So Peter said, well, this is very unusual. It's never been done. Let me go check. And so he went through the gates and he came back out a few minutes later and he says, all right, you're good. You can bring one suitcase of whatever you want, just for grins. Can I look in the suitcase? And he said, sure. And he opened it up and Peter goes, pavement. You brought pavement.
He can't take anything with you. Great wealth and great wisdom don't keep you from death. And you don't get to take anything with you. You came from dust and you're going back to dust. So wisdom is better. But does it matter? Well, Solomon doesn't answer the question yet. We're going to have to work some more through this book. Not yet. But if you can't answer the question, does it matter? Then you can't really condemn the fool, can you? Because it doesn't matter. So then we go to the fourth thing that I wanted to show you this morning, and that is I hate my life. Let's read verse 17. So I hated life. See, I didn't make that up. I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who is toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. You know, the words of every teenager are printed right here on this page. I hate my life. But before we condemn teenagers, teenagers are Solomon for such despair and petulance. Let's apply the gospel. Loving life for the sake of life or for wisdom or for pleasure or for work or for great things accomplished. Loving life for these things is idolatry. For Solomon, this is a statement of faith. Do you see that? Because he hates life under the sun. Now, life under heaven well, that's a different story altogether, but the burden that God has put on us is that life under the sun is worthy of despair and rejection and hate, and the reason is death. No matter how many sporting events I attend that my kids play in or my grandkids play in, I'm going to die. And no matter how many projects, great projects that I finish, I'm going to die, and they'll be cared for someone who doesn't care. No matter how much I accumulate, I'm going to die, and someone who didn't work for it will squander it or use it for a purpose that I didn't plan. I'm 61 years old, and, and I'm driven by the vision of the gospel to plant thousands of churches in India and see 400 million people come to Christ in the next 30 years. I wake up thinking about it, I go to sleep thinking about it, and I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it, and then I'm also working to get prayer into the churches in the USA, and I feel the weight of this tension in this verse. I'm gonna die. Does anything I've done matter? And will the churches that ELI plants in India stay orthodox? Or will they just drift away when the next leader comes or when the pastor dies? 
You see, this is the irony of life that Solomon is forcing us to look at. So if life under the sun is hateful, is there joy anywhere? Well, the answer is yes. Meaning and joy and pleasure and satisfaction are the gifts of God. Look at verse 24. There is nothing better. Think about that. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find joy in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have joy? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. In Orissa, India, in the city of Balangir, there's an orphanage. And my friend Daniel Kumar in the Good News Center has turned this last year a dump of a building that they inherited for the orphans. And they've changed that building into a beautiful hostel for these kids to live in. And on one end, it's a guest house that's not desirable for the whole community. And they took an old dried up well and they had to redig it. And the engineer said there would be new, they would never find water. Oh, what do engineers know? They are installing a solar pump so that even when there's no electricity, there's running water because they found water in answer to God's to, to prayer, in answer to our prayers. It's so good. And, and, but there is a pump because the well did not hit an artesian spring. Now, if you know this, you know an artesian spring has enough pressure to send the water to the surface without a pump. It flows all the time on its own. Beloved, we are not artesian wells. We do not give water on our own. We need a pump. And that pump is the Holy Spirit who comes as a gift from God when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only he can make the water of life flow. Only he can give you joy. Look at Psalm 127. Unless Jehovah builds a house... Those who build it labor in vain. Unless Jehovah watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. That's so good, isn't it? He grants sleep to those he loves. And it's not the sleep of depression or the sleep of despair. It is the rest that is provided to the joyful who rests in the care of Christ. It's really good. But you see, like much of what we've read today, there is bad news. The bad news is that if you try on your own to find life and joy and meaning and pleasure or accomplishments or wisdom and knowledge, you will fail and you'll be miserable in your futility. Vanity of vanities, you'll, you'll be driven to denial 
and to idolatry in order to survive this dreary life of pleasure or work. And, and like our culture's relentless pursuit of youth and long life, you'll do anything to avoid thinking about death and you'll be depressed and your life will be full of unanswered questions even if you come to church. That's really bad. Is it you? Is it you? The good news is, and there's an incredible good news. The good news is, is that all who ask the Father for life and forgiveness and joy in Christ Jesus, he gives it. And like the water turned into wine, it's brimming over and comes in abundance. Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. Jesus died on a cross for our sins, even the sin of idols of great goals and worthwhile pursuits. And he rose from the dead to give us new and everlasting life, a life of joy and peace in the midst of a cursed world that is full of chaos and decay, made crooked that we can't straighten. And this gift comes to all who put their faith in Christ alone for salvation and turn to him alone for joy. He will satisfy your greatest longings. Here's John 7. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What an incredible gift. He takes our old dry hearts of stone and gives us new hearts of flesh. He gives us the Holy Spirit so that we have a pumper that never fails. And new life. And now life and joy forever flow and death can't take the joy away. And it's not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done. It is amazing grace, beloved. So I invite you this morning to put your hope and trust in Christ and make him your pursuit so that you will be invited to the feast of joy at the end of the age. Will you answer that call today? And I'm not just speaking to people who've never answered that call. Will you answer the call of joy today in Christ Jesus? So did we answer the question, do you think? Is it better to be wise than foolish? Even though both die, does it actually matter? Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am, it matters. Here's verse 26. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool never enjoys a day 
of his wealth or accomplishments or knowledge. In futility and despair and worry, he eventually hands it over to the wise who eat and drink with great joy and who work for the glory of King Jesus, who is joy personified, and he shares himself with us. This, too, is the gift of God. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let's stand for prayer. Our Father, we praise you this morning. We honor you because you are the giver of the great gift of joy. You make life worth living. You hand us purpose where there is none. And you do that by giving us yourself. So we ask this morning, would you give us the fullness of joy? Would you take away despair? Not simply because wars end, because they never do. Or not just because trouble cease, because it never does. But would you make our hearts straight in the midst of a crooked world that would rest in you and you alone? Would you give us that gift, we pray, in Jesus' name? And all God's people said, amen.